You know, when a new comedian watches an experienced comedian in comedy, we call this taking class. And this bitch took my whole class. She sat up there and was laughing as hard as she always laughs, as if nothing bad had even happened to her. And I saw her show. Some bad happened to her. <laughs> she was drunk. So she starts talking to me while I'm on stage. But the way a person would talk to a television when they were alone. She's talking to me like that. That didn't bother me, because I knew her. But the crowd didn't like that shit at all, because she sucked. <laughs> and a guy in the back of the room stood up, and Daphne's hair was dyed blonde at the time, and the guy screamed out, and his energy felt wild as fuck. He said, hey, Daphne! And everybody kind of clamped, like, got tense. We didn't know if it was a heckler or an active shooter. And <laughs> he said, he said, does the carpet match the drapes? <laughs> yeah, it was fucked up. The whole crowd kind of groaned because it was so, like, mean. Everybody groaned, except for Daphne. She kind of laughed, which was weird. And she didn't even look all the way back. She said, sir, I don't have carpets. I have hardwood floors. Just like that. <laughs> Just like that. Hi guys, welcome to Shug Me The Mooney. This is Shug. It's going to be a little different this week. Here on episode 71, this will just be me, Shug. So hopefully you will enjoy it as you have all of our other weeks. What a weekend. A lot of things happened. Um, a lot of things happened over the last week. Fortunately, we were here on a Tuesday to discuss Something really shocking that came out last night, but actually really came out over the last weekend, which was this news of John Gruden and just basically a buffet of um, offensive slurs towards several different groups, um, including the LGBT community. And actually initiated by him um, using some racist language uh, in an email about the NFLPA's, um, I believe, VP, DeMora Smith, uh, from back in 2012 when he was working for ESPN. So we're going to talk about that. But of course, what's really been like, you know, burning up the Internet and it's been really, really polarizing is Dave Chappelle's newest um, comedy special entitled The Closer, which some are calling um, transphobic, some are calling anti-LGBT, and it was just announced today by the Netflix CEO that they were not planning on pulling it, which a lot of organizations were pushing for. Um, that's not going to happen. And Netflix explained why. 
So we're going to get into that. But also a bad look for them is that one of their employees who's actually transgender, um, it came to light that in response to the special, she had tweeted uh, an entire thread um, explaining her um, dissatisfaction at the fact that Netflix would release um, Dave's special with all of this language that some would deem to be anti-trans or transphobic. Uh, and that person was suspended, but Netflix is saying why that person is suspended and that person, or at least um, the news being circulated is that that person was being suspended because they spoke out against the special. So we're going to start off with that. And this will be episode 71 of Shug Me The Mooney. All right. So Dave's special, it popped up in the middle of the night. Uh, streaming services in large part have shifted towards the Disney Plus model, which is basically instead of releasing things, you know, if they say they're going to re- release something on like October 5th, you know, it used to be that they would release it like midnight soon as it turned to October 5th. And, you know, some places they would wait at least until one o'clock. Some places they would wait until one o'clock and then release it at that time. But now what a lot of companies are doing is they're releasing it at 3 a.m. Eastern time so that, you know, um, the people on the West Coast, you know, it's three o'clock. So it's 12 o'clock their time when people on the East Coast are probably already in a deep sleep. You know, the West Coast people would basically spoil all the stuff for the East Coast people, whereas, like, you know, before it used to be the other way around. Uh, East Coast people would spoil things for West Coast people. So they found a, a middle ground where it's, it's you know, things are going to be released at 3 a.m. so that everybody gets it all, you know, within a time that, you know, it wouldn't be spoiled for other people. Um, especially now where all the different series that are on these various channels. So first I'm going to discuss the statements being re- that, that's been released um, by Netflix CEO Ted Sarandos, in which he said in a company email, it never feels good when people are hurting, especially our car- colleagues. So I wanted to give you some additional context. You should be also be aware that some talent may join third parties in asking us to remove the show in the coming days, which we are not going to do. We, do, we don't allow titles on Netflix that are designed to incite hate or violence, and we don't believe the closer crosses that line. I recognize, however, that distinguishing between commentary and harm is hard especially with stand-up comedy, which exists to push boundaries. And he went on to say that stand-up is an important part of our content offering and said that Sticks and Stones, which is Dave Chappelle's previous special, was one of their most watched, stickiest, and most award-winning stand-up special to date. 
and went on also to say externally, particularly in stand-up comedy, artistic freedom is obviously a very distant, different standard of speech than we allow internally as the goals are different, entertaining people versus maintaining a respectful and productive workplace. And if you want to look that up on Google, the email is readily available. This is nothing that was kept under wraps and was leaked out. It's it's out and about. And the person who was suspended was a software engineer named Tara Field, who is a transgender woman. And Netflix as a company is claiming that uh, Tara, along with two other employees, were not suspended for their statements, but instead for attempting to attend a director level meeting that they weren't invited to you know i've been in jobs before there's you know meetings where only supervisors allowed to meetings where only managers allowed to meetings where just the district managers or regional managers are allowed to attend so that may be the case so this there's some it's somewhere in the middle whether or not um that's what occurred um whether or not she was suspended for speaking out or whether or not she was suspended um for what they claim which is uh, a little bit of uh, overreach by her and um a couple of her co-workers but i just wanted to talk about dave special and my thoughts about it and i apologize if anything i say offends anybody i'm just speaking on what i took from the special And a lot of people interpreted this special as like Dave taking shots at women through his outspokenness about the handling of the Me Too movement. Some would say it's anti-gay because he pointed out some of the flaws in intersectionality. And most of all, people are calling it transphobic because Uh, I guess he pointed out a few of the inconsistencies in how the trans community, how the trans community distinguishes themselves as opposed to the rest of society as they are fighting to be um, a part of general society and not look down upon as others so to speak, and he spoke on that, and a lot of people feel like he took shots at those various different communities, and basically, like, declaring war on them, but after watching the special, because I watched the special twice, um, I watched it after the Yankee playoff game, so I started, I watched it after the Yankees playoff game, and it was pretty late at that point because I started watching like something on my DVR and I didn't get to start watching it until like quarter to two. So it was really, really late. And the first time I watched it, I was kind of watching it like, you know, doing like the kind of like laugh, like, you know, when they take a when they take a dog's like vocal cords out because like they bark too much. So it's kind of a lot of like dry life laughter. So I really was watching it just to like watch it the first time around. And then the second time around, I really watched it just to grasp it and, you know, take notes here for the show. And the way I've been thinking about it is like I've been 
I watched it once for myself and I watched it once for the people who claim who who I watched it once for myself and I watched it once for the people who have an opinion on it that didn't watch it and are just going off of quotes, little quotes that were taken and um dissected and think pieces. I watched it for those people because clearly a lot of people, you know, when I go on like I read the comment section and stuff like that, like a lot of people have admittedly said like they didn't watch it and didn't intend to watch it but they have an opinion of it which i I find weird um and a lot of people complaining that like he just got up on stage and whined about cancel culture which i've said on this show it doesn't exist because and my feelings about those you know people that you know, don't like the special and don't want to watch it, but have an opinion about it. It's like, you know, to me, if, if you don't like it, don't watch it. And that's why I don't really like believe in this idea of cancel culture. I've always said it's, you know, the market dictating um your necessity. As for instance, I you know, I don't care for Fox News. I think of it as, you know, very um inflammatory television and it spreads out a lot of news that can cause a lot of harm but it's still on tv so i'm like if cancel culture really existed like tucker carlson and lauren ingram wouldn't be on a tv every night and that i don't have any power over all i could do is complain about it but the one thing i do is i never turn my channel on to fox news because what if i watch fox news you know they might turn on commercial and then some kind of company that's you know um sponsoring them they're getting my viewership and that makes more people sponsor them and give them more money and just keeps them on the air. So I, I avoid that channel at all costs. costs. Um, and what I've seen, I've, I haven't seen a lot of people in those comments say like, yeah, I'm canceling Netflix because the Netflix CEO also speaks out that as far as the LGBT community goes and when it comes to representation, they have plenty of programming on Netflix that you can see, such as Sex Education, Young Royals, Control Z, and Disclosure. And those type of things they have not taken down. Um, nor has anybody asked to take it down. Why, why, why would you want LGBT, you know, shows that show LGBT people, why would you want them taken down? Um, it's an it's a, it's a interesting conversation to be had but you know let's let's get into the actual show so he starts off and he talks about how he went to a restaurant in texas with his wife and they were just sitting there you know having a meal having drinks and a woman comes and approaches them and this is during covid and this lady you know they could i guess like dave and his wife were following covid protocols and you know texas is loosey-goosey when it comes to that and this lady comes over and just invites herself to start talking to them. And as she's talking to them and like basically like breathing over their drinks, you know, at a time where, you know, airborne virus is like basically plaguing the world. He notices that somebody is uh, videotaping them on their phone. So he walks over to that person and cusses at them and says all kinds of stuff to them. And then he realized that that person, because um, (laughs) 
they wore their shirt tied up and like they they had fingernail polish. It was like a big like white dude. Um, he realized that person was gay, and then when he started getting, Dave started getting aggressive. That white gay person pulls out his phone and then calls the police. An angry black man. Um, police, you know, that person knew what was going to happen. So he was basically calling out, again, the hypocrisy of intersectionality. Now, if you first, if this is your first time hearing that term, intersectionality is just this idea that people who are part of various marginalized groups, the fact that you're part of a marginalized group, it could be assumed by other people that you also show empathy and support towards other marginalized groups or you're expected to support and be empathetic to towards other marginalized groups so if you're black you would be empathetic to the lgbt community because they're also an oppressed community um if you're an immigrant you would also be supportive of you know the black community and black lives matters and, and, and stuff like that. So the issue with that is people, irregardless of what you are, you still have your inherent biases, you know, cause a lot of people make a, a thing out of, you know, African-Americans apparently like there's rampant homophobia and transphobia in our community. So a person that goes to a black lives matter rally wouldn't be at a pride rally or be at an anti gay rally and so on and so forth but my question is when it comes and dave expresses where it's like he said if you've watched him throughout his entire career as a comedian you would know like his problem isn't with the trans people or lgbt community it's with white people and he said his issue is like a lot of these white people that he has issue with and are part of like the dominant society, like they're changing the rules as time progresses because they're joining all of these different groups to become marginalized or to say that they're marginalized and being discriminated against. But at the end of the day, when the push comes to shove and you can use your white privilege, you're going to use it anyway. So that's why he used that example of that, that guy in a bar, um, which I understand because, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, you could be a man and simply be attracted to other men, but be from, but still take part in a lot of the cultures and traditions that, you know, you were raised in. You know, for example, you could grow up in the Caribbean, so you enjoy, um, you know, roti and oxtail and jerk chicken and all the different Caribbean dishes and enjoy um, reggae and calypso and soca music. You could be Chinese and take part in a lot of different Chinese cultures and traditions. Hispanic take part in, you know, Hispanic, you know, Latin um culture and traditions but at the end of the day still be gay because being gay or bisexual or being um not conforming to the gender in which you were born 
it's part of you. That's your truth. But at the same time, in the same way, if you're like, uh, so if being gay isn't a choice, um, you could be a gay man and grow up in like the deep south and be, um, grow up in an area that's 90% white and 5% black and 5% everything else in a place that's, you know, a lot of people have a lot of racist views. And that just doesn't go away because you're gay. You'd still have those views. And, you know, me and Mike, we, we talked a while back ago when we talked about like the interracial dating about how, you know, a lot of black men would date white women or a lot of um, black women would date white men who essentially fetishizes them and don't, doesn't really like care about them as you know or understands their struggle as being um african americans in a white society so i think the same thing works in in the gay community as well um dave's point was like a lot of people hide behind the idea that or or that reality that a lot of gay people get discriminated against and a lot of hate crimes are done against them and he said in that situation, a gay black person would have never called the cops on them because a gay black person at the end of the day, they're black and they know what would have happened if the police showed up and saw um, a black man, you know, being aggressive. He also highlighted the definition of a feminist textbook definition, which is anyone, not just women, who believe that women are afforded equal rights as men. So he himself declared himself to be a feminist, as do we on the show. If you listen to our stuff, we talk about women's issues a lot. But at the same time, he highlighted the hypocrisy of white feminism, which we've also discussed on the show when I discussed the history of the history of white feminism, because if you really look at the timeline, white feminism started off more or less in the late 1800s which means after slavery meaning not when the african americans of this country were still slaves women really at least in mass didn't push for women's rights but when they saw black people gaining rights black men gaining rights you know that's when they were like no 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 like I'm a white woman, I should get my rights first. So Sojourner Truth goes up to speak and she gives this speech, ain't I a woman? And when it was done, they wanted to like suppress her talking about slavery and the hardships and discrimination given to black people at the time. They only wanted her to talk about being a woman. So a lot of people misinterpret it and misinterpret to this day, the ain't I a woman speech, thinking that she's just talking for women. And in reality, she's really talking about ain't I a woman. I'm black, so I deserve rights, as do all black people, but I'm a woman, so I deserve rights, as do all women of every color. So that has been misinterpreted over time. And he also you know, poke holes in the Me Too movement and saying that, 
you know, a lot of the stuff they did was weak. And he was called out by a lot of actresses and famous women and saying, who are you to speak about how people, how things should be protested. And he went back and I think it was like probably the first time he mentioned in any of these specials, um, the most famous thing about him other than his actual um, work, which is he left $50 million that was given to him by uh, Comedy Central and Viacom to keep on doing the Chappelle show because he felt at a certain point, like people were laughing at him and not laughing with him. So there's evidence of him taking a stand about things. So I, I you know, I'm speaking as a man, so may, maybe my opinion doesn't count, but he's speaking, he has an example of taking a stand against um, something he didn't feel that was right. And he just thought it was weak, you know, such as the demonstration, such as going to the Emmys and Oscars wearing, you know, black and trying to make a, a statement like that. Or, you know, every time they came up and speak, me too, and time's up. And he said a bigger statement would have been to fire all their agents because their agents knew what the Harvey Weinsteins and the other sexual predators in Hollywood were doing but still brought these women to them. They could have fired those men and then found like a woman that was working. He, he's at the mail room. Um, but I'm thinking like, he was just saying any woman that was working for an agency in a subordinate level, hoping to be at the level of, you know, these women's old agents working with them and saying, this woman is now my representation. And then boosting that woman so she, you know, holds power in Hollywood now and producers have to deal with, go through her to get these stars. And he was saying that would have been a stronger statement. So, again, feminists. And he just highlighted multiple trans people that he encountered that he he's, good, he's personally on good terms with. So, one of the instances was a woman who... Um, had heard his, you know, saw his specials before and, you know, that lived in a town that he lived in. He lives in out in Ohio where he's like, you know, she confronted him about his, you know, transphobia and why it was in a bar and she was with two gay black men. And that trans person said, you know, we've been going through this for like 50 years. And Dave, as a black man, was looking at the two gay black guys and saying, like, are neither one of you guys going to tell her? Because in reality, like, Black people have been fighting for rights since, fighting for the right to be viewed as a human being since 1619. But he he did say that after, you know, after that tense confrontation, um, him and our person, like, they're, they're cool now. They're on good terms. Uh, she holds no grudges against him. He holds no grudges against her, which is great. And then another person he encountered is a young a woman by the name of Daphne, who he befriended, who is trans and is an aspiring comedian. And he just talked about just befriending this person. And she was in a crowd when he was saying all the trans jokes and she was laughing at every one of them. And he was doing a show in San Francisco. I believe it was the beginning of Sticks and Stones. It, it was Sticks and Stones. And 
gave her 45 minutes to open for him. She didn't do well, but he did his show and she interacted, had a little crowd interaction with, with him and her um, that you heard at the beginning of this episode that he described. Proud was, after a while, like at first they were annoyed because she wasn't funny in her set. But during their interactions, it was funny. It started to become funny to the crowd. The crowd started reacting and 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 giving her good feedback. And then afterwards, it was like an after party. Invited her back. She met a whole bunch of great comedians, including the late great Paul Mooney, who, if you haven't watched it yet, check out our YouTube channel. We did a great um, tribute for him in a previous episode, but the video of it is up on our YouTube channel. And he just said she was like killing the room, and he saw the potential. He he saw the potential in her, um, and he didn't see a trans person. He just saw like an aspiring comedian, and as a comedian who made it, uh, he he joked. He said, you know, who some would call the goat, because Dave's up there. He's up there with a lot of greatest stand-up comedians of all time, and he just looked at this person. And it was like whatever I'm, whatever I need to do to help this person achieve the heights in her comedy career. I'm going to help her out with. And for the rest of her life, like he, he, he did that. So then later on, he discussed the term turf, which was laid upon JK Rowling. He used her as an example where as a woman, she still feels that femininity is sacred to um, cisgender women and describe it as thus and not really in a way that was meant to insult or dehumanize trans women but a polarizing quote was that he said gender was a fact and then um followed that with a quote which is every human being on planet earth had to pass through the legs of a woman in order to be on planet earth that is a fact and, you know, if you take that quote wholesale, like, it is a fact. I mean, nobody, no human has been made, like, artificially. All of us had to come through, had to become human beings through the miracle of childbirth. That is true. Um, and it, it's really hard to argue. And he talked about the term turf, which is, trans excluding radical feminists and he talked about googling it and it's interesting and he just he, he talked about googling it because he said you know anytime with the lgbt community in order to he joked that in order to win arguments they have to make up words and again it's I something too i had to like look up i was just like wow and he you know what he was essentially saying was that Trans women are women, but at the same time, we have to recognize there are women who are biologically born women that might be offended by the idea of you equating trans femininity with womanhood. And he was simply just making that case. And the example he used was, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, where Caitlyn Jenner and, and I actually felt the way, but I, I kind of forgot about it till he brought it up. Where he was saying, um, you know, Caitlyn Jenner won Woman of the Year in her first year of being a woman, and I remember at the time I thought it was kind of messed up because 
there's probably so many women in the world at that point that did all kinds of things in all kinds of different fields, whether it be sports, science, uh, politics, you know, anything, you name it. But it was overshadowed by a woman who felt that she was trapped in a man's body, changing genders. And that's some, you know, just just doing that made her woman a year. And he said something you know, he was basically trying to say, you got you, you gotta understand how people are offended by that. It's like, you know, if somebody gave out best black person award and just gave it to Eminem over Dave Chappelle, it would be like, what the hell? And, you know, he used the analogy of blackface, but I think a better analogy would have just been the idea of like cultural appropriation where a lot of people take black culture and make it their own without actually being black and not taking on the struggles and the hard parts of, of you know, the, the, the difficult parts of life that comes with being black. I think, you know, that, that that's my one criticism that he, that analogy, it would have been a better analogy. Um, another thing I'm critical of is that he talked about how, you know, the baby, his controversy with the gay community. And he was just talking about how, you know, before, this past summer where the baby got canceled, quote unquote, long ago before he was, you know, a, a big rapper nationally when he was just up and coming in North Carolina, he was in Walmart and he killed a man. So he was basically saying like, you know, the baby killed that guy and nobody cared, but, you know, he said something about the gay community and they, um, they canceled him because of that. So he's basically saying, like, you know, you could kill a black man, but you can't hurt a gay person's feelings. But though the problem with that is he didn't provide the context that the baby was actually he actually did that in self-defense. You know, he was in Walmart with his daughter. Somebody came busting on him and he bust back and that person got got, basically. And going back to Daphne, after the last special Six and Stones which I believe he said she opened up for him. He got a lot of criticism from the trans community online. And Daphne, being a good friend, came out, defended him, and said, you know, a lot of people are accusing him of, like, punching down on the trans community. But she knew Dave, and Dave doesn't punch down. He doesn't punch up. He punches in lines, meaning that he doesn't say anything to anybody that he doesn't feel isn't equal to him. So if he's joking on you, he recognizes you as somebody who's a human being and going through life, the same life experiences as him. And going back to his stand-up where they were interacting with each other and he asked her a bunch of questions that he was curious about or that a lot of people might assume about the trans community and she answers those questions and at the end of it he said you know like she's really like she cracked them up and she's hilarious but he didn't understand anything she was talking about and she said I don't need you to understand me I need you to just believe that I'm going through a human experience and what that means is that every single thing that we might not know about the LGBT community, um, anything that we might not know about somebody who is different from us. 
as long as we could understand that that person is a human being, that should be the bare minimum. And that's what Daphne was expecting from Dave. And at that moment, you know, they connected and, you know, they, you know, he said like in our moment, like she didn't even look at, she, she wasn't even looking at him as a friend. She was just looking at him as a person and she wasn't even speaking to just Dave. She was just speaking to like all of us in this world. I don't understand, you know, what trans people go through. And that point, I think he drove home. But the unfortunate thing is a lot of people equated that to the argument a lot of racist people have, which is, oh, I can't be racist. I have a black friend. And I, I, I sternly don't believe that's what he was trying to say, because as I've described way, way back a while ago, I had a roommate in college where they did the I have a black friend. Now, me and our person wasn't weren't particularly close. We never really had deep ass convos. So please believe when this person came on, they were like a Trump supporter. Like I was surprised, but I wasn't shocked because <laughs> I didn't really know him. Um, but what I was upset by was, you know, just to, to provide context, if you guys haven't been with us from the beginning, there was a point that a person I roomed with in college, me and two of my other friends at the time who were black, posted a picture of himself wearing. Donald Trump swim trunks, Donald Trump hat, and a big old Donald Trump flag on it. And he knew because when he boasted and he knew he was going to get a lot of shit from it. And a lot of people, I guess a lot of people got at him. I didn't because I didn't really care. I just blocked his ass. But I saw that he made like a whole, like, because that's, that's what they ended up doing. That's what they always do. Write a whole essay on Facebook. Like that little post, they just fit all the words that they could fit in there and part of it the part that re it's not anything that he said you know all the bullshit which is you know i came here and i worked hard and my family worked hard and da, 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 and all of this shit the part that upset me was the part where he said people are calling me racist but i had black roommates i was a roommate of his so automatically that included me. That upset the shit out of me. Because, like I said, we never had deep-ass conversation. That person wasn't trying to understand me, nor my two friends at the time. Their experiences, you know, our experiences as African-Americans. And, you know, trying to find some kind of, like, common ground. So, that usage of, oh, I have black, I have black friends. I can't be racist. That was using the I am a black friend because you know what you're doing is wrong, but you're going to throw these people in front of you to deflect the criticism that you're catching. And I don't think Dave was doing that because I think he knew Daphne on a personal level. Now, this story gets sad if you haven't watched it. Daphne defended him and of course a lot of people in the LGBT community a lot of people in the trans community felt that she was whatever like the term for Uncle Tom for trans people that depend, the, defend transphobes they felt that she was that and they attacked her for it and Dave didn't outright blame them but she eventually jumped and leapt to her death, killed herself, and left behind a daughter. 
that you know gonna have to figure out why her parent isn't here anymore and they've opened a trust fund for her daughter that once she's 21 years old is hoping to be around to award it to her personally so that that little girl doesn't have to worry about money or um if she has any dreams um she could you know she don't have to worry about money and she could chase those dreams but at the same time he says he wants to have a conversation with her and just tell her tell her how great her parent was which i thought was a cool thing but you know he didn't blame that community but he said you know people go through a lot of shit and especially on like the internet when all of these people like you don't know they don't know you they could write all kinds of things and call you all kinds of things and that might be the last straw for you because you never know what, what 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 loads people are carrying but one of the things he said was empathy isn't straight empathy isn't gay empathy isn't trans empathy isn't white empathy is em- empathy isn't black Empathy is bisexual, it goes both ways. And essentially that means the same way I feel for you, you should feel for me. Just look at people as as people. And like Daphne said, just believe that whoever you have issues with is going through a human experience. And as I said, a lot of people think this was Dave waging war against this community. I mean, waging war against the LGBT community and the trans community, but I I didn't interpret it as much. I felt like this was Dave. There was a table. One chair was for Dave. One chair was for feminists, LGBT, trans people, and whoever else that feels offended by him, for them to him to sit there, them to sit down, and let's have a conversation, and let's get to know each other. And the reason why I know that to be is because the last thing he said in the special, and I've not seen that in any of the articles or any of the think pieces I've seen or any of the tweets when they want to take quotes from the special. He said to the LGBT community, I swear I'm not telling another joke about you until I'm sure you're laughing with me, but please stop punching down on my community but I he's basically saying like he won't do another special for a while until there's some kind of understanding between him and a majority of these groups where he could be funny with them just like he's funny with everybody else and that's that's an argument a lot of people are saying like if you've been laughing with Dave over the years he's made fun of plenty of different people and plenty of different groups and people didn't care or people didn't care to be offended but now they're offended and um if you haven't seen it yet a while ago we talked about the minefield of comedy and just how comedy is changing and adapting to the times and in that i stated you know people are gonna have to adjust to the people are gonna have to adjust like the rules change over the years and if you're truly funny you'll survive and if you're not funny you won't because if you're funny is if, if your comedy is based on hate like you know you're not you're not gonna go anywhere because a lot more of these people like you are are offending 
are they have voices now they have platforms to to um platforms to voice their displeasure now but at the same time i think a lot of these different groups that are being offended you know i don't understand how you want to be part of the fabric of society when you're untouchable period when it comes to comedy before i end this i just want to say one part of netflix ceo's quote or part of the email that they put out that i just want to hone in on is when he said we don't allow titles on netflix that are designed to incite hate or violence and i gotta tell you in reading like tweets talking about dave Chappelle, where people were like defending him in comments i've seen you know have been trying to defend dave Chappelle. i've yet to see anybody say i hope trans people get killed i hope trans people get beat up i hope harm is done to the trans community I haven't seen anybody say they hate the trans community or hate the LGBT community. I personally, when I walked out of it, my feelings towards it, those communities didn't even change or got worse. Like, I don't hate any trans people. I don't, I, I hate when any kind of harm is done to that community. But you know, to to talk about what he said as like inciting violence or or basically enabling people to to harm people, I don't think that's that's what he tried to accomplish. I don't think that's what he accomplished. Um, if he liked it or not, you know. And I'm just basing on what I've seen, and I've been looking at all, all the comments because I was very interested about it before I talked about it here, and I haven't seen anybody really be like, you know, say anything hateful towards the trans community i think a lot of people have just been on the fence that just like it's comedy um he's just speaking his thing and a lot of people call him like said like he was whining about cancel culture i'm like you know it, it was an hour and 10 minutes special and he spent like five minutes of actual five to ten minutes of actual time discussion discussing any of this stuff and people just picked apart little sentences. And I think if you could take like one sentence out of a paragraph, you could take out the context of it. And that one sentence could be offensive. But if the whole rest of the paragraph is them, you know, providing context to it, and it's just like, oh, like, okay, now I understand what, why, why he said that, you know. And that's what people need to do. So I encourage people that, you know, if you didn't watch it, but you have an opinion of it based on, what's being written about it and I'm picking out various quotes that tells the story they want to tell I'd encourage you to just actually take the time out and actually watch what he says and if you're still offended you're still offended whatever but if you watched it and you're offended by it just don't watch it I mean this is there's plenty of other stuff on Netflix as I said before they have all of these other shows you know sex education young royals Control Z and Disclosure. And those, I believe, would be a lot longer than an hour and 10 minutes. So you can spend your time watching that. Now, if you want to talk about actual hate speech, last night during Monday Night Football, John Gruden announced his resignation from the Las Vegas Raiders. Pardon me if any other time during this, I say Oakland Raiders because Las Vegas Raiders doesn't roll off the tongue just as yet he was amidst a 
10-year, $100 million contract with the Las Vegas Raiders. He was in his third year as their head coach. And over the weekend, some emails had surfaced. The initial report was that he said uh, some racially insensitive things about the NFLPA's executive director, Demaris Smith, and a lot of vulgar criticism of Roger Goodell. But the quote that first came out was the Demaris Smith uh, quote, which was saying that he had lips the size of Michelin tires. And if you, you know, if you've heard some racially insensitive stereotypes about black people, one of the things is that we have big lips. So Gruden is, is right now feigning ignorance by saying that he uses the term rubber lips to refer to a guy that he catches lying because they can't spit out what they're trying to say. And to that, he said he was ashamed he insulted Demar Smith and he never had a racial thought when he used it. He said he was embarrassed by what's out there and he never meant for it to sound that bad. But unfortunately for him, um, around primetime yesterday, word got out that he used racist, misogynistic, and anti-gay language some of it including calling Roger Goodell um, a word that starts with F, has two Gs in the middle, and ends with T. That's an anti-gay slur. And he also felt that the St. Louis Rams uh, at the time, um, just to be clear, these, e- these were emails um, between him and Bruce Allen, who was the general manager of the Washington football team at the time, of course, we know, or known as the Redskins. While John Gruden was working for ESPN on Monday Night Football, ironically, as we've reported uh, many, many moons ago, the Washington football team is being investigated for, you know, a lot of different workplace mishandled, um, a lot of misconduct in the workplace. And, the NFL right now in the investigation has 650,000 emails that have been reviewed as part of the investigation. And it's just been reported that the NFLPA is petitioning the NFL to release all of those emails from the Washington football team investigation. So as far as, as far as we know, a lot more things could come out of this. Um, the NFL completed its investigation into the workplace culture of Washington in July, and, and they, they fined them $10 million. So we'll keep, keep our eyes out for that. In these emails exchanged with Bruce Allen, as we reported before, some pictures of cheerleaders um, topless. In our initial segment a while back, we said that what was reported was these were outtakes from um, a calendar photo shoot that they took in um, in like a tropical location where these girls were topless and somehow some way this got circulated. And one of the people that it was circulated to was John Gruden. And some of the things that was said by John Gruden was that the NFL pressured the St. Louis Rams and their then head coach, Jeff Fisher, to 
draft a queer player, which was Michael Sam, if we remember that back in 2014, um, who was drafted in the seventh round. His career didn't last much long, unfortunately. But before he resigned yesterday, John Gruden was the coach of Ryan Asib, who was the first openly gay player or the first player on the contract to, to come out as gay. So it must have been very devastating for him to find out that any conversations that he's had with John Gruden, where um, John Gruden was very accepting to him, might have been um, half-hearted or without any heart at all. And a lot of his racist language, you know, he, he also implied that Eric Reed, who we know has been working towards demonstrating and working for social inequality, um, trying to end social inequality and racial injustice and working against those things and demonstrating during the national anthem, he implied that Eric Reed should have been fired, I guess, um, or released for doing so. And it's, it's just a lot of, it's just incredible. And what I hope is that this type of talk, it isn't just basically this, this type of culture that's in the NFL doesn't begin and end with John Gruden because I think us as fans and, and uh, consumers of the NFL product know better than, you know, this, this type of thing starts with John Gruden and it ends with him. And I liken it to like Donald Trump. A lot of people feel that once, you know, you vote Donald Trump out of office, you know, all the racism and you know, the bad shit that comes with Donald Trump just goes away because he's gone away. And I don't think it should be that with the, with John Gruden. Um, a lot of people also are joking that Urban Meyer, who's also done a lot of shady things in the past, you know, last weekend, some photos surfaced of him being at a bar in Ohio and just doing things that are just unbecoming of an NFL head coach. You know, and he came out Tuesday and he apologized for that stuff. Some people are joking that, you know, uh, Urban Meyer is a bit relieved because John Gruden took the took the heat off of him. So that also goes to what I'm talking about, where it's like, you know, people try to put all the, the, the bad things into one person. I think it goes away, but fail to realize there's plenty of people like him that have these jobs and they keep getting these jobs. and it, it also highlights the the fact that the NFL has a problem with race when it comes to the head coaching position because they're not hiring African-American head coaches or African-American head coaches who get hired don't get second opportunity. You know, if you look up all the NFL, the black NFL head coaches, most of them mostly only hire like one or two more jobs, you know, one or two jobs as a head coach they don't get a third chance, you know, or they usually have to go back to being coordinators or position coaches and stuff like that. and have to work their way back up. Whereas we see a lot of head coaches basically fail up who are white. So that's, that's an issue. And I hope that that doesn't get overshadowed by John Gruden. Um, and also the other thing is a lot of his players or former players are coming on and just being like, this is the John Gruden we know. You know, Keyshawn Johnson, he was kind of like viewed as like a problem 
player or a player with like a big ego and et cetera, et cetera. And he came on his show this morning with Alan Hahn and um, Jay Williams and just discussed the fact that the John Gruden you, you're you seeing now is a John Gruden like he's always known. And he also took 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 away credit for them winning the Super Bowl in uh, 2002, Super Bowl 37. And saying that that was essentially Tony Dungy's team, the team that Tim, Tony Dungy and Rich McKay built, the general manager. And the following season after that, like basically everybody left Tampa Bay. You know, Rich McKay went on to take, I think, a job with the Falcons. Um, Keyshawn ended up getting traded to, um, I believe, Dallas. It's very peculiar because he didn't really have, you know, and when he got signed to a 10-year contract, I thought that was crazy because, you know, not even like Bill Belichick has a, a 10-year contract. Coaches usually get signed to like four years, five years, uh, six years the max, um, and they've been well-established. But John Gruden has been out off the sidelines for years. He was in the broadcast booth. And out of nowhere, they, they, they gave him 10 years. And unfortunately, three years into our 10 years, it's, it's kaput. And essentially, he left $70 million on the table by the stuff being, um, you know, the stuff coming out. And it's crazy, man. I, I, and, you know, God only knows what kind of stuff is in the emails. You know, because remember, these are like rich white men, like wealthy white men, the owners, and they have rich white men as general managers and coaches. So Lord only knows what kind of stuff goes around in these emails. And these are work emails, um, emails that the NFL are now privy to because of this investigation. And who's to say what other kind of like racist and misogynistic and homophobic communication was being passed around between these different um, franchises. But we'll we'll see. And again, I just hope it's not, you know, people look at it like it's a one person issue and there's nothing that needs to be dove in deeper on, you know, the the character of these coaches and the personality of these coaches, you know, because it's, it's hard. You, you're, you're running a locker room with a team that's probably like 60% black and you're talking about somebody having big old Michelin lips, you know, that, that doesn't go well, go over well. And it also should be noted that Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, you know, the Raiders have been poor with PR over, you know, the past couple months because in April when the Derek Chauvin verdict came and he was found guilty, they tweeted out, I can breathe finally or something like that and people thought that was really really insensitive we understood how well-meaning it was but it was really insensitive um to use that kind of wording when you know a guy was basically choked to death but he put out a statement where it basically just said um we accept john gruden's resignation and i was like the statement and everybody was making a joke that it was like when dwight from um the from the office apologized and he was just he apologized and his statement was like this is my statement of regret and Jim looked at him as like you couldn't memorize that and he was like no because I don't feel <laughs> I couldn't I didn't feel it and I was very much you know what what was put out so 
We'll see. Um, it also should be stated. I, I hope that now that another NFL head coach job is open, that this is an opportunity for all the really great um candidates of color that are on the NFL most prominent Eric Bienmi. You know, these guys get you know the, this this opportunity it would it would do well for the Raiders to to take a deep look into um him as well as other African Americans um Byron Leftwich you know this goes on and on all right award of the week for this week goes to the New York Knicks <laughs> and I promise you is is it's unbiased I'm just you know giving the New York Knicks the award of the week for being the beacon of hope as far as NYC sports is concerned. I don't know if um, people have been noticing, but the city of New York, due to the fact that the Yankees were eliminated, it's been confirmed that in the calendar year of 2021, no New York sports team will win a championship. So it is officially 10 years from the last New York championship team, which was the Super Bowl 46 New York Giants. And, you know, when that fact was presented, all of the New York sports teams, for the most part, are within, like, some very murky waters. Um, Also... The 10 years thing, is it coincides with the term of Mayor Bill de Blasio, who is a Boston Red Sox fan. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what his other sports teams are, but I, I believe, like, based on his ridiculous um, Brooklyn Nets getup, that he leans Nets more than he does Knicks. But he stated in his initial... He said in his initial, I believe, on his election, because he was elected in November of the year, the the Giants won the Super Bowl, and he stated that if any New York sports team had won a championship, that the team itself would have to foot the bill for the championship celebration and parade. Um, It wasn't... I, I don't think it was intended to be like an anti-New York sports thing. It was meant to be part of, you know, his democratic stance, which was, you know, he didn't want to put more onus on tax players or have unnecessary spending for tax players. And that's why he said it. But it was just ironic that he stated that. And then New York teams eventually went on. You know, it ended up being a moot point because New York sports teams didn't win any championships. We had the Rangers were in a Stanley Cup and lost to the Los Angeles Kings in four games in 2014. The New York Mets were in the World Series and lost in five games to the Kansas City Royals. And then the Yankees were one game away from the World Series in 2017. And the closest they've gotten since then was game six of the American League Championship Series. So it's just interesting that it coincided with New York sports team. Him saying that coincided with New York sports teams not winning anything. So it'd be interesting if, you know, whoever the next mayor is, they open up by saying, like, I don't care who wins, we're footing the bill. And then instantly a New York team wins a championship. Um, 
but just going through the teams, I can't really get too much into hockey because, you know, I support the New York Rangers, but I know nothing of their team composition and where they stand. I do know they were last rebuilding, but who knows? They might surprise. I know nothing about the Islanders. I think they're pretty, like, close to, like, the higher upper hierarchy and the, um, the hierarchy and the Eastern Conference. Uh, but go Rangers. Giants and Jets, they both started off one and four as of um, Sunday. And both wins were in overtime. So literally both wins came by the skin of the teeth. Uh, the Mets are still the Mets who uh, were the first team to spend, I think, like 100 days in first, 100 and something days in first place and end up with a losing record. Um, it's just that now they have an owner who's just as manic and um, bitches on social media just as much as their fans do. So I guess that's nice. And the Yankees, they're getting lot by the teams that are in front of them. You know, Boston won a World Series, rebuilt for like two years, lost, you know, traded their biggest star in Mookie Betts. And they're back, you know, on their way possibly to another World Series you know, all before the Yankees did. Um, the Rays, of course, won the division by like eight or nine games and basically have been, you know, treating the Yankees like they're, the, you know, they're the small market team. Uh, Houston, of course, you know, the first time around 2017, you could say they cheat, you know, you, you, you could make an argument that, you know, they, you know, they're, win over the Yankees was ill-gotten, but you can't say the same thing about 2019, and you can't say the same thing about the other four years they went to the American League Championship Series, including this one. And, of course, there's teams behind them that could also, you know, close the gap on them as Boone, who hopefully won't be the manager of the Yankees, but I'm hearing reports that, you know, will you know, Boone's most likely stand, but he said, you know, the, the gap is closing on the Yankees because, you know, you have teams like the Angels, the Mariners, the Blue Jays, uh, the A's are always um, surprising. And who knows, before you know it, the Orioles might stockpile all of this, um, these high draft picks, and they start playing well. And all the teams in the Central start, you know, their rebuilds might be a little quicker, just like the Red Sox. So, you know, admittedly, you know, there's no they ended up in a second wild card spot, but you know, we all know there's no third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth wild card spot for them to fall into. And then the last New York team, other than the Knicks, the Brooklyn Nets, they announced today that Kyrie will be Kyrie Irving due to his unvaccinated status and his stance against getting vaccinated will be sitting uh, four to four zero future until he's eligible to play again, meaning either he gets the vaccine or New York City lifts the mandate on being vaccinated because the NBA has mandated that if you're playing in a where, where the games are being played, if you're playing in a city that mandates um, people in indoor venues to be vaccinated players, must be vaccinated and he's refusing to do so which is 
odd being uh, you play in New York City, which has uh, vaccine mandates. So that would mean you wouldn't be able to play in front of your home fans. You won't be able to play in 41 home games. You won't be able to play in two games against the New York Knicks. And you won't be able to play in games um, on the road against other cities that have my, um, vaccine mandates. So that leaves the New York Knicks, which are 100% vaccinated. And these days, they're not the Knicks of old, where, you know, there's a lot of drama surrounding them. And as, you know, uh, you know, usually that clouds the on-court accomplishments, which, you know, there weren't any accomplishments, but the team, they're looking really good. They've won both of their preseason games by double digits. Um, I'm really excited. They're maintaining cap space. They have all their first round picks. And, you know, the, the, the future really looks bright for them. And admittedly, like Brooklyn, even without Kyrie, my, you know, like are probably a lot more closer to a championship with, you know, James Harden and Kevin Durant. But even if they won a championship, like New York don't even like mess with the Nets like that. So, um, that championship parade, you know, assuming uh, whoever the new the next mayor of New York who, who's who's fitting the bill, you know, it might not be that much because it might not be that much people. So they get a award for the week for being the beacon of hope for New York City sports teams. An honorable mention this week, Daniel Craig for an unprecedented tenure as James Bond where there was a lot of firsts. Um, I think he was routinely the first James Bond who did movies where he didn't sleep with the main Bond girl. So, you know, uh, the, the lead actress in a movie wasn't reduced to just being, you know, a disposable female or, or a sex object. You know, a lot of people initially when he got hired before Casino Royale, didn't like the fact that as opposed to the other bonds of the past he was you know blonde haired and blue eyed and for a lot of people now they they might closely associate the role of James Bond with Daniel Craig because he did such a phenomenal job he's the first James Bond to have the entire tenure of his James Bond career where the movies were interconnected because all the movies before used to be pretty much like standalone with barely any references to the previous movie or the movie that followed it followed it um and I, I realized when i was going to the theater to see no time to die he's the first james bond to actually leave the role on his own accord um sean connery left and they basically had to beg him to come back because george lazenby didn't want to continue the role and in in the first movie that they did without Sean Connery so they felt they still needed his star power so he begrudgingly came back for the money admittedly and then left the role Roger Moore basically just became too old for the role and just left after his last movie I, I said it before that the Bond girl in the movie Tanya Roberts her mother was younger than he was Timothy Dalton he did two James Bond movies in the late 80s, but there was a struggle with the ownership of the franchise. So he was meant to do a third movie 
but in the long period between you know while the the ownership was being disputed he left the role and then not opened the door for Pierce Brosnan so Pierce Brosnan came in and he took over and then he did die another day which was critically panned and um even though it did well in the boss office and he also started to get up there in age as well so all of that led to them moving the, the franchise in a different direction and hiring a new actor and that actor became Daniel Craig so he's the first one I got to send off and you know I don't want to give too much away for the people who haven't seen uh, No Time to Die if you're not a James Bond fan um it's still an excellent movie to go to watch if you're a James Bond fan it is beautiful and it's essentially a love letter to the entire franchise and a, and a love letter to Daniel Craig and his entire tenure as James Bond but something I didn't get to discuss a couple of weeks ago was how I really got into James Bond um I didn't get to mention a person that put me on a James Bond which was a gentleman by the name of Wentworth when I was a young teen uh, over the summer, my mom, she worked in Manhattan for a major banking corporation. Obviously, I'm not going to say the name. She obviously couldn't watch me the whole time. And I would have just been bored sitting at the desk playing with um, my Game Boy or doing something else. So what I would do is I would just hang out with the people she worked with because a lot of people were just great people and fun people. And one of the people was Wentworth, who... I first met cool dude, Jamaican. He was Jamaican, but he was raised in England. So he talked and he had his English accent. And he was for some, I, I, I can't remember. I think it was in between Die Another Day and Casino Royale. And he was just going through the whole history of the series with me. And I just became fascinated by it. I got hooked. You know, he was just going through the whole thing. He told me about, you know, how much it meant to him that Ian Fleming would write the James Bond books, some of which I've, had, I've shown. He would write these, he would write the books down in Jamaica. He had a property called Golden Eye, which they eventually used for a title of a movie. He would write the books there, which eventually became all these James Bond movies. So he personally felt connected to it. And I kind of personally felt connected to the James Bond series through him. Um, because he he told me the whole history of it. I really I, I knew of like Sean Connery. I didn't know like Sean Connery used to be James Bond when he was younger. I didn't even know James Bond was around for like four years at that point. Um, and several different people had been playing him before. Like my idea was like Pierce Brosnan was the first one, you know, up until that point. And then I just fully immersed myself in it. So bought all the movies, watched all the movies, bought virtually all the books. I think I've read all of them. Um, I'm still working on From Russia With Love and Goldfinger, but I've read virtually all the other books. And I just became a huge James Bond aficionado, and it's all thanks to um, Wentworth. So I haven't talked to him in a while. We used to always talk often, but if this ever comes across to him um thank you for making me such a big james bond fan and again honorable mention goes to daniel craig who did such a fascinating job as james bond and he brought you know basically a character that was established you know post world war ii in the books and then brought to the films in you know the cold war era 
uh, helped along with the other James Bond, the other actors that portrayed James Bond to carry this person through the different eras and basically be a reflection of the time they're in instead of just, you know, maintaining the character that Ian Fleming created, but just, you know, progressing as time goes. And that's awards of the week. All right, final thoughts. My final thought on the Dave Chappelle special. I want people to really listen. You know, if you haven't watched it, go and watch it. Don't just dismiss it because you've heard things about it. Go watch it. Make your own um, conclusions. I know it was a bad look for Netflix because you know this young, you know this 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 trans woman was suspended. You know, at the same time that you know they announced that they weren't gonna take it off, take the the um special off of Netflix. So, you know, by that perfect storm, it seems like, oh, like she spoke up and she she got, they gave her consequences, but they didn't give Dave Chappelle consequences, you know, but in reality, according to them, she was suspended for a whole different matter entirely. But even if she was, I mean, I've seen the tweets because I saw the the initial night and she linked Netflix into her tweets. You know, I didn't go through the whole thread because it was, like, long. It was, like, a lot of tweets. So I don't know if she said anything offensive, but, you know, you you are kind of, like, you know, dancing with the devil a little bit when you work for a company and then are openly, like, critical about them, and then it makes, like, a big, you know, it, it blows up, you know, um, and they kind of have to deal with it. And I likened it to you know a couple years ago i worked for a company where they had an incident where you know a manager in a city i don't even work with was discriminatory towards two young black men called the cops on them and it became like a whole big thing in the media if you know of what i speak of you know what it is and me as a black man i felt like compelled to you know speak my mind on the whole thing just first of all saying like there was nothing in our company policy that was like explicitly racist. So, you know, this manager was her own, was doing her own thing that went besides anything that the company has ever thought us to do. And, you know, a lot of people was calling the company racist. And I kind of felt disappointed because all the black people I had worked with were like in, like had worked for the company and they enjoy working for it. And, working for them and I as a black person enjoy working for them the woman that hired me was a black woman her boss was a black woman and I believe like her boss's boss was a black man so you know I, 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 I had to speak up but I knew not to like put the companies you know at the company and all of that because even if I'm defending them you know you know I'm still like under employment so, you know, I don't know what the consequences are, but according to Netflix in their statement, they said you can speak out if you want, but this, you know, there was something in their company's policy that she did while she was working that doesn't have anything to do with Dave Chappelle that she did. Or perhaps, you know, that meeting was about Dave Chappelle and she tried to in, in, intrude on it and, you know, face consequences for that. But we hear her side, we hear the company side, and, you know, somewhere in between is the truth. And 
you know, I'm pretty sure soon we'll we'll figure that out or we'll find that out. And again, that last thought, empathy does go both ways. You can't just ask for people to feel something for you and you don't feel something for them back or you understand the discrimination that they face, you know, in order for them to understand the discrimination you face and then switch up whenever it's convenient. And I think that's what he was more speaking about. I don't think he intended to offend anybody. Uh, like I said, I didn't go out come out of it, you know, being hateful of the trans community. I was just hopeful that from it, like, we got, like, some kind of, like, dialogue and some kind of, like, there was some kind of common ground to be found. I think a lot of people didn't watch the special and, you know, came up with their own conclusion based off of certain quotes and didn't, you know, realize that he provided context, you know, and made it seem like he went on like a whole hour long rant about the trans community. When in fact, like when I rewatched it, it really felt like it felt like the first time I watched it, like he talked about them for like a while. But then when I rewatched it, I was like, he was only really talking about them for like seven minutes, like in total spread across. And John Gruden, like that was downright despicable. I know a lot of people are saying, like, wow, these comments were, like, 10 years old, like, and they come back to bite them. And I'm like, nah, buddy, I mean, going, you know, just to tie everything together, you could interpret the things that Dave says a certain way, you know? And he said it, like, Daphne would interpret him a certain kind of way, but another trans person might, you know, be offended by what he, he you know, what he said, but when it comes to John Gruden, like, when you use in terms, like, queer and the anti-gay slur that begins with an F, you know, that's pretty straightforward, man. Like, there's no kind of context you could provide around that to make it that, yeah, he didn't, he, 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 he didn't mean those things. You know, nobody could be, like, a halfway bigot. So, it's, it's, it's hard to believe when you say things like, you know, people are being uh, pressured into signing or drafting queer players and, you know, calling the commissioner NFL a F and then turn around and then saying, yeah, I said, like, this black man had some big old, like, tire, you know, lips that look like car tires. And then say that, oh, I didn't mean for it to be racially insensitive. That wasn't my, my idea. It's like, no, nah, we've seen your ideas on other things. So it, I'm more inclined to believe like you meant it in a harmful way. Uh, please check out the video version of our awards for the week that I have been posted on YouTube. Check out Storytime. Uh, our story time series and brand new that uh, I promised last week and we put out this week. Once upon a time in Hollywood, if you recall, we ran through the novel of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, all 400 pages, which is based on a book and it's written by the writer and director of the film, Quentin Tarantino, my favorite director, one of my favorite directors as well. And we really go in depth and there's a lot of detail in a book about a lot of actual events, you know, detail and shows from the 1960s, actors from the 1960s. So if you heard us talking about it, now you can actually see what we're talking about. So check those out. Those are coming out every, it's five parts. 
those will be coming out every Friday. And also every week, you could always expect we have sugar reviews, brews when I do my beer reviews. And please go get vaccinated. This pandemic, it's still here. I would love to do the show from a different venue other than my bedroom. I'm tired of people looking at my dressing table. Uh, <laughs> so please, let's get vaccinated so we can all be out and about and, you know, doing our thing. And this has been episode 71 of Shug Me the Mooney, Shug Me the Mooney, Shug Me the Mooney.